Like for me, I'll tell you, the coolest moment of everything that I do is after we've collected the survey data and we get the first statistically significant responses and we look at it. And I think, I know something that no one else knows, but I'm gonna get to go tell everybody. Like that is so cool to me. From Qualtrics Studios, this is Breakthrough Builders, a series of conversations with people whose passions, perspectives, instincts, and ideas fuel some of the world's most amazing products, brands, and experiences. I'm Jesse Pierwall. My guest on the show today is Stacia Sherman Garr. Stacia is a researcher and thought leader on talent management, leadership, diversity and inclusion, people analytics, and HR technology. She's a frequent speaker and writer, and her work's been featured in Fortune, Forbes, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal, and of course, many, many pubs in the HR trade. Stacia co-founded Red Thread Research in 2018 after leading talent and workforce research for eight years at Burson by Deloitte. Before that, she was five years at the Corporate Leadership Council, part of CEB Gartner. Stacia has an MBA from the University of California, Berkeley, a master's degree from the London School of Economics, and undergraduate degrees from Randolph-Macon Women's College. Today on the show, Stacia and I talk about how she became a builder by way of her love for history and her passion for people and entrepreneurship, key trends she's seeing in HR tech and people analytics, some of the biggest surprises from recent research she's done, and what she thinks lies ahead in the new future of work and in the talent economy more broadly. Without further ado... Breakthrough Builder, Stacia Gar. I am here with Stacia Gar. Stacia, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Jesse. Stacia, you've done some really interesting and diverse things over the course of your career. Let me ask you how you frame yourself and who you are as a professional. I like to think of the work I do is, is really enabling others to make the lives of people at work better. So I am a researcher. I do a lot of writing about the future of work, about talent management, about right now a lot on people analytics and diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. But really, if I kind of zoom out to the 30,000 foot level, when I go to sleep at night and think about, you know, am I pleased with the work I'm doing? It comes down to helping people have better lives through their work days. And has research always been at the core of that for you? Has getting in touch with a truth through empiricism and divining it and storytelling it always been part of your story? It has as a professional, yeah. My first proper job was at a corporate executive board, now part of Gartner. And I was a researcher there and then have continued on that research path ever since. And so, you know, I think for me, data and numbers and using that to make better scientific decisions is at the core of doing things well. Because if we don't have that, we are just going off of our gut feel. We're making decisions based only on our own experiences. And and we know that that's not a good way to make decisions. But the other part of it, and I love the way you frame the question, Jesse, is around storytelling as well. Because what we remember as humans is stories. And so it's really important the data make good decisions. But then a big part of my job is finding the stories that bring those to life that people can connect with and remember and think, oh yeah, that connects to me individually and I can do something different as a result of that story and know that it's backed by credible information. 
And Stacia, how does a history buff, how does a professor of U.S. history, which you are, (laughs) get interested in the career angles that you've kind of pursued over the past decade, decade and a half? How'd, How'd that happen? Yeah, so I have a master's in history, as you said. And when I graduated, I wasn't completely sold on the idea that I wanted to be a historian. What I loved about history was the idea of identifying patterns and making connections. And this idea that the individuals existed in these bigger systems, these bigger trends that were happening. But even so, sometimes an individual can make a massive impact on their time or their organization or their country. And I love that concept. What I didn't love about history was that it was always backward looking, that there were a lot of people out there who didn't necessarily see the value of it and so wouldn't necessarily spend the time and energy to kind of derive those insights. And so I did two things at the same time. One is I went to work for a corporate executive board doing research on leaders in companies instead of research in, on leaders in countries, which is what I'd done for my master's degree. And then at the same time, as you said, I decided to teach history part-time at Northern Virginia Community College to get a sense, like, is this really what I might want to do? Like, which way? So I basically just pushed off the decision. <laughs> Well, let me ask you about the story you told me once about your Abraham Lincoln books. It's a fascinating view into, I think, how your mind works and the 15 authors. Can you tell that story? Yeah. So when I was in undergraduate, I had two amazing history professors. One of them is a a gentleman named uh, Dr. John Entremont, and he taught a course on Abraham Lincoln. And it was not your ordinary, you know, just here's Abraham Lincoln, kind of go on your way sort of thing. But we actually read over the course of this semester, 15 different books on Abraham Lincoln. At the same time, I was taking a course from another professor who was very into propaganda, into World War II propaganda. And so it was this amazing intersection of seeing how different perspectives and and a viewpoint that somebody, that an author might want you to adopt could influence how the, the facts you know, I put facts in air quotes, how the facts showed up. So, you know, you had one author who was from the far South and his opinion on Abraham Lincoln was very different and written for a very different audience than somebody who was maybe from the North. Um, and this this is, you know, in the early 2000s. It's not like we're reading stuff from the 1860s or 70s about Abraham Lincoln. So what it brought to me was this idea that um, propaganda in different viewpoints is alive and well with us. Part of the way that maybe we cut through some of that, especially when it comes to making good decisions, is that we use data to help us understand what we're working with and to then make those decisions better, to provide that data to others, and then to tell stories that help them remember and change their perspective. Yeah. And to your point, recognizing and respecting the, the patterns, but not being backward looking. So so then you go into a role of corporate executive board, and that's where you start to have some real accountability for understanding the patterns in the data but have also an accountability to your clients to look forward and help them start to make sense of it. So walk me through that experience in the early part of your career and what it was like to use the facts from the rearview mirror to look ahead. Yeah, you know, it was it was a really powerful experience to be there at that time because we were really at the dawn of many of the technology companies that we have seen come to the fore today. Certainly at the very beginning of cloud computing, we were seeing the beginning of things like talent management suites and like Salesforce was a new thing. It was, you know, this idea that we could have these cloud-based databases and that then translated into what we do in HR. That was one thing. The second thing that was a big shift was the realization around the impact of employee engagement from a scientific perspective. So data that actually proved that if you 
had stronger levels of engagement, you could expect higher levels of productivity. Those studies had only been done in the previous couple of years before I started at Corporate Executive Board. And that perspective was dramatically changing how people were looking at employees in the organization and the way that we should actually be treating talent and nurturing talent and therefore how we should be changing HR practices, systems, et cetera. And so it was really an opportunity to see these two concepts, the changing view of what employees themselves represented and the technology that we had to enable, seeing that from the very beginning. Well, and this is a year where a lot of it's come to a head. Uh, you know, we've obviously seen that for the past year, this shift to remote and the requirement to make agile work, the new normal, come to the fore. Remote onboarding, all the rest of it, HR and IT have had to really work together a ton to come up with immediate solutions over the past the past year or so. How do you see successful organizations driving collaborations between HR and, and the talent side, the employee side, and the IT side, or you know, whoever's looking after kind of the tech stack in the house? I think in general, the most important thing is to be clear on the strategy and the outcomes that the organization is trying to go for. So we see a lot of organizations trying to grab for the the neatest, shiniest, brightest object because it's cool. I mean, some of the things that are new with artificial intelligence or machine learning or you know some of the other buzzwords that you see out there, they can enable really neat things. But a lot of times, folks aren't necessarily focused on what problem are we solving with this particular technology. And so with Red Thread, we spend a lot of time talking about what is your strategy when it comes to employees? What do your employees need? How are you thinking about them by different segments and and what those needs are? And, And our ability now with data is so powerful that we can judge that with much greater sophistication, using data to identify what those needs are, and then saying, okay, how are we going to go after that? And then what's the tech that can enable us to do that? And also, what can we latch on to that we already have within our organization? What's our existing tech stack? Where might we be able to expand on our existing versus bringing in new? That's where you're going to start to win your friends in IT. You know, whenever HR comes out and just has yet another system to add onto the stack, that doesn't make anybody happy. That collaboration point is important. Yeah, I was going to next go into what do you counsel chief people officers or HR professionals to do? What dialogues do you persuade them to have with their leadership teams around the continued adoption of analytics? What's the right way to approach this? Yeah, so it starts with what is it that are the business priorities and where does where does your talent strategy hook into that or your HR strategy hook into that? And given that, how are you going to measure when you've made progress on that. So what are the specific metrics and analytics you're going to be able to look back on in 18 months and say that was a success or that was not? And then putting those into place early, aligned to the outcomes, and then going through that whole process as we discussed of, okay, so this is what we're trying to drive for. What's the strategy that we're going to use to get there? And how are we going to think about that in different ways across the workforce? Stacia, if you look back on all the years of research that you've done, studying organizations through the window of talent, what do you think most people would be surprised to hear or to learn about what the data on talent management or employee engagement reveals? Yeah, one of the things that was most surprising to me was a study I did a number of years ago on performance management. Right now, we are very much so in a zeitgeist of believing that we should be coaching and developing everyone, and that's the best way to get to better outcomes. And in some instances, I don't disagree with that. In many instances, I don't disagree with that. But what was surprising about this particular study was that we were looking at 
two different models of performance management, one we called the competitive assessment model, and one we called a coaching and development model, which is very similar to what we're seeing now. Competitive assessment was more this kind of old school GE rack and stack and you know, rank people and fire the bottom 10%, that whole, that whole thing. But what was fascinating about this data was that we didn't actually find that the model made the difference in terms of how employees performed or their levels of engagement. What mattered was the clarity of expectations around the model. So if people knew they were going into a company where they were going to be ranked and stacked and compared, as long as they knew that and the expectations were clear, that was okay. If they were going into a coaching and development company that I knew the expectations, that was okay. Where companies fell down and where performance fell down was in the middle, when there wasn't clarity on what was going to be expected and what it took to succeed at that organization. And, and I think now with retrospect, it makes sense. But at the time, I remember looking at the data, I'm like, are you kidding me? These these rank and yank, whatever language you want to use, these these competitive assessment companies, they're doing just as well. Like there has to be something wrong. And no. No, it just comes down to expectations and people knowing how to meet them. And what about performance management vis-a-vis different demographic characteristics, whether it be gender or background? I think there's some interesting findings that you've revealed through Red Thread and, and other areas where you've done research. Yeah, so one of the most interesting studies was one that we just completed, I guess, about a year ago now, where we had been doing a whole bunch of research on women and networks, actually, in in power dynamics and organizations. And we were doing that study at the same time that we were doing a general study on performance management, what worked, and you know all this other stuff. And one someone on my research team came to me, or actually, I think I went to her, and I said, hey, I'd like to look at this data by demographic data, by things like gender and, and ethnicity. And she said, well, you know, whenever we do this research, whenever anybody does performance management research, people get the same scores, it breaks down fine, whatever. I was like, I get it, but let's like do this deeper dive, okay? Like, let's not just look at the overall outcome, but let's dive more deeply into some of these subsections, things around coaching and feedback and candor and and this other stuff. And so we did that and it turned out we had pretty statistically significant differences amongst men and women. And so then I kind of stepped back and I said, well, let's let's look into this a little bit more. Like my understanding is just that it usually is the same, like, but maybe there's more here. And I totally felt like I was like Alice in Wonderland going down the rabbit hole. And it turns out there's this incredibly rich history of research that shows that different, you know, demographics tend to get rated differently in different ways. You know, for instance, for women, the feedback tends to be less specific. It tends to be more behavioral. So, you know, Stacia, you did a nice job, you know, talking about this or making people feel welcome. Whereas for, for men, it's often much more like you achieve this objective. So there's there's some pretty serious differences. I'd been doing research on this space for close to 20 years and I'd never seen any of it. And so that was also <laughs> surprising to, to come across. And it's something since then, we've spent a lot of time and energy talking about, particularly in the context of COVID. What implications does that have for the types of conversations that leaders then need to start to have with their teams? Because I'm guessing this wasn't a situation where there was a blip in the historical record, that actually if one were to continue to excavate data from any given period, you'd find some similar results, just having the courage to go look. What would what would you say is the right thing to do if I'm a people manager, if I have that new kind of insight that I'm acting on, what do I go do differently? What do I lean into that I've maybe been doing all along? Yeah. So. One of the things that was really interesting was that you could get rid of some of this bias if you told managers, for instance, that women are as good at hitting their objectives as men. 
right before they they wrote a review or gave a review. Not that that Stacia is as good as any you know other person, but women generally. And that would actually get rid of the bias. That's one thing certainly that we can do. In terms of things that we could lean into, you know, there's been a lot of effort around sponsorship in the last number of years and, and being actively supporting and being actively an ally of different groups. And so being the one who speaks up and says, hey, um, you know, we should be inviting this other person into this conversation or, hey, I know that you think so-and-so who's kind of in the typical, you know, group would be good for this promotion, but maybe we should be opening the this new opportunity up to a broader subset of people. And so I think that there's been a number of people who were doing that work already and who are kind of advocating for folks who are not necessarily in the room or advocating for opening the aperture wider. And I think that's an area that we should definitely be leaning into more. We'll be back in 30 seconds after this brief word from Qualtrics. This past year has been different. And even though we've all been working differently, it turns out different is kind of working. So how do companies make sure that working for them keeps working for their employees? With help from Qualtrics XM, you can know exactly which actions can be taken to not only attract, but to keep the best talent out there. Make sure the future of your workplace works for everyone with Qualtrics. Learn more at qualtrics.com future. We're back with Stacia Gar, HR thought leader and founder of Red Thread Research. I've heard you talk, Stacia, about the intersection between people and data and this idea of being at an inflection point where what organizations and leadership teams do now around things like analytics and data privacy will set the stage for a lot of what we get out of our employee experiences over the next few decades. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective and philosophy here and the guidance you're giving to companies? Yeah. So if we think about it right now, we are beginning the process of building a lot of very sophisticated uh, algorithms that will make at least sorting decisions, if not final decisions about, you know, certainly when we bring in resumes or people from the outside into our organizations, which resumes do we see, for instance? I think that the, what happens outside the organization is eventually and not too far in the future going to get to what is happening in the inside of the organization. So think about certain candidates getting recommend internal for jobs or rotations and the like. And the challenge that we have, and, and some of this has been pretty well publicized, is that the data sets that we train these algorithms on are historical and there's been bias in humans' historical behavior. And so if we set it up so that we just use historical data equals, you know, success in the past, this person was hired. Therefore, you know, we're going to try and find more people like that person. Well, you're going to end up with a non-diverse workforce, which is, you know, in many ways what we have at the moment. And so one of my big concerns is that we will just be solidifying the challenges of the past and and reinforcing them and and putting them actually into the algorithms that, you know, as more, we'll continue to feed them with data, but if we're not fixing it early, uh, we're going to have these problems. So I, I think it's incredibly important that we're talking about AI and ethical AI and how we use data and and who's going to get to see the data and, and all these other things. You know, the European Union has been ahead of us in the U.S. on this topic, but we're seeing the United States come up, you know, particularly in California with a lot of the um, California Privacy Act, as well as some other work that's coming through. But I think it's really important. It's going to influence what happens, the algorithms that we have uh, 10, 15, 20 years from now. 
So on a sliding scale of unabashed optimism to significantly worried pessimism around how this will actually play out, given the choices you believe leaders around organizations and society are prepared to make, where do you fall right now? I'll go for a seven, which is pretty optimistic. I think that we have some challenges, but we also have people who have now recognized those challenges and care deeply about this these issues. And the other part of this is the human resources professionals out there are also keenly aware of these issues now. And I've seen some vendors who've come into the market who've come in with a plan to do things that I think are maybe um, outside the realm of what we would want to do with data about people. Might be fine to do with data about, you know, individual customer decisions, but not data that actually affects people's livelihood. And the HR community and the people analytics community have pushed back hard and said, no, that's not that's not okay. Um, I think that there's more opportunity to formalize that, things like you know, ethics charter, data ethics charters in companies as well as in vendors and the like. But I have been remarkably proud of our community in terms of what we've done in terms of saying there's tons of opportunity for innovation, but we have to remember that this is people and people's livelihoods that we're, that we're working towards. What do you think will be the most lasting impacts of the pandemic-forced reset? to the way people work, the relationships people have to colleagues and, and to companies and even to work itself? That's a great question. I think my aspiration or my hope is that the longest lasting impact is that we're going to see more and more equal involvement from both parents in the lives of their kids, because through flexible working, we've seen what we are missing out on. So I think it's a, a little bit of a cliche to say, you know, hybrid work's going to stay, blah, blah, blah. It is, and, and that's absolutely true. But then what are, what are the downstream impacts of that? And I think the downstream impact in many ways on families is going to be positive. Once we, you know, get in place some of the support systems that were removed, namely schools during the pandemic, I think I think the impact will be positive. So, so that's one thing. I think, and I hope, the second thing that will happen is, is that we transition to being much better about using data and objectives to measure performance than we were in the past. It used to be, you know, I mean, there's tons of studies that show, for instance, that um, proximity to your manager would be a strong predictor of your performance score. Um, certainly, we know that, you know, FaceTime and hours has been a predictor of performance scores. My hope is, is that because we're now going to consistently be managing people who are outside of the office, that we will begin to be much more objective and clear about what we need people to do and to not be assessing them on whether they're, you know, sitting there in their chair. So those would be my two hopes. Well, Stacia, I want to move the dialogue into some questions about your leadership philosophy and some of the things you've done in your career. Tell me the founding story of Red Thread Research, if you would. Yeah, so my co-founder and I were both at Burson by Deloitte. I was I'd been there for eight years and she'd been there for about five years. And that's long enough to kind of certainly know your space well, but also kind of know the the opportunities that are out there. And there were a few things that we just wanted to do differently that that we couldn't do, you know, where where we were with it being an SEC regulated firm. And, you know, some of those things were around innovating in terms of 
the process. So we we like to do research where we call it research thinking out loud. And so that means that we are, you know, constantly publishing even before we're certain of, you know, we don't go through the whole process of we're gonna like analyze the data to death and then put it out there. We put things out there, we get feedback, then we go back and we look at other things. And, and it's just kind of this wonderful process of involving our community in the work that we do. The second thing actually goes very strongly to that point. We try to involve people as heavily as they want to be in the work, which I, I think is fun. And then, you know, the third thing that we do is that we are just trying to make it more approachable, more fun, a little bit irreverent at times in terms of the work that we do, because it's important without a doubt, but it also isn't, it shouldn't be boring. So, but anyway, the two of us started the firm together. So we're two female entrepreneurs and we're three years in and firm's going great. We're, we're growing and I've never been on a steeper part of the learning curve. So it's, it's been great. What do you love most about it at this stage a few years in? I love being able to make decisions quickly and see the impact immediately. So when you're in a bigger company, you, you know, there's other people you got to get approval from and bought in and, and all the rest. Of that. And there's lots of good reasons for that. I worked in a big company and there's lots of good reasons. But it is really fun to just decide on Monday that you're going to change the website and do something different. And on Tuesday, the website's changed. Or you're going to, you want to reach out to these people and talk to them about something. And then, then you do. Stacia, talk to me about what it's like to develop teams doing research in talent management and employee experience and, and so forth. It strikes me that not only do you have to have an empirical rigor, an excellence in writing and a curious sense about yourself, but you also have to really deeply get enveloped in the idea of the unique relationships that HR professionals have with the rest of their organizations. And the topic of talent is inherently a sensitive one. So. How do you discover and develop people in this zone professionally? Yeah, it's not easy. You know, like you mentioned, there's kind of an interesting intersection. So you need people who understand data and are fluent with it. And many of them, you know, being able to run the statistical analyses, but they also have to be able to write. They also have to be able to speak to clients and to present. And those three skill sets often do not overlap. Then you add into it that you need to know something about HR and talent. Ideally, you also know something about technology and the HR technology. And, you know, and, and all of a sudden it's 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 pretty hard to find folks. What we have found though is key is one of the words that you used, which is develop. So nobody comes into this space knowing everything. People know a small fraction of it. And then it's a question of do they have the ability to develop the other areas? I think that when we are looking for folks, the question we always ask is, do they have intellectual curiosity? Do they go through the world asking why? Why is that that way? Why, why isn't it another way? Why should we do this? And if people can do that, I can pretty much teach them everything else. And at this stage of your career, what advice do you like to share with younger professionals who might have some interest in the kind of career path that you took? Yeah, so I... I often ask them to identify which of those three areas that they spike on, so being research, writing, and speaking, and which ones fulfill them the most or give them the most energy is probably the way I would think about it. You don't have to always be the person up on the stage talking about things. You know, you can be the person who's writing it and, and doing the research and then somebody else does it. But I ask them to, to think about those. And then then I have them... if develop their capabilities in, in the other areas where they, it's just knowledge, right? Like go and listen to a whole bunch of podcasts on, on uh, HR technology or, you know, do this or that. So I, you know, I think we try to identify what gives them energy first, 
And then where are some of the gaps? And then fill the gaps as as well as we can. But I think the bigger question is, why would you want to do this work in the first place? And if people are not either excited by the ideas aspect of it, like for me, I'll tell you, the coolest moment of everything that I do is after we've collected the survey data and we get the first statistically significant responses and we look at it. And I think, I know something that no one else knows, but I'm going to get to go tell everybody. Like that is so cool to me. And so I get really excited by the idea, right? I'm in some ways an idea person. So if you're excited by the idea or if you're excited by the idea of, of helping people at scale, then this is a great fit for you. I love it. I love it. Stacia, let me take you to a lightning round here. I'll ask you a couple of questions. Just give me your, your first thought. The first one is brand that you admire, one that you can't imagine living without. I am fully now in the Peloton cult. It's like I got one last November and I love that thing. I love the whole ethos, the the Facebook groups that tell you like where people are coming up with different exercise routines and it it works for me. All right. And as a history professor, as a history buff, what's a favorite book? Ooh. Anything that James McPherson writes, he's an amazing historian. So he he's written about Lincoln, he's written about others, but anything that he's right writes, I'll read. What's the biggest thing that's going to be on the mind of the chief people officer in 2025, four years out from now? I think we're still going to be reckoning with hybrid, unfortunately. I think that there's going to be a lot of downstream effects that we don't necessarily, we haven't thought about yet. And I think there's still going to be a question of like, how do we make sure that people treated outside the office are equitably treated as those inside the office? And a question of in-groups and out-groups and what the impact of that is on things like leadership and succession and promotion and, and the like. And Stacia, what's something that would surprise most people to learn about you? My pandemic activity was taking voice lessons from a recording artist. And uh, I am not a great singer, but it puts me very thoroughly outside my comfort zone. And I laugh a lot because I'm so uncomfortably outside my comfort zone. So I don't think people would expect that's something I would do. Where should we not be surprised to see you 10 years from now, Stacia? Um, probably still leading a company, but I'm not sure if it'll be Red Thread. We'll see. You know, I, I've been a researcher for a long time. And at some point, I think I'll probably want to do something something differently. But I do like leading a company, so <laughs> so probably and probably still in our space because I think, um, like I said, I think we have the power to change people's lives in a meaningful way. Well, appropriately suspenseful and ambitious. I love it. Hey, Stacia, it's been terrific to get to know you a little bit. It's been great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you so much for having the opportunity. It's been really great to get to know you and and uh, love your show. Thanks for listening to Breakthrough Builders. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a rating and a review. It really does help other people find us. And please tell your friends. Breakthrough Builders is a Qualtrics Studios original, presented and produced in collaboration with Studio Pod Media in San Francisco. The show is hosted and executive produced by me, Jesse Pierwalt. Our writer is Todd Bagnell. From Studio Pod Media, Deanna Morenci is our show coordinator. Editing and production by Katie Sunku Wood. 
Additional editing and music is provided by Notalab. Our designers are Baron Santiago and Vensuka Shindavajak. Website by Gregory Haydon. Photography by Christy Hemclock. Special thanks to the entire Breakthrough Builders crew at Qualtrics, including Ali Rohani, James Wadsworth, John Johnson, and Kylan Lundine.